Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, hi, Catherine. Tell me, what case are we going to be looking at today? So today we're going to be uh, discussing a shooting at a music festival in Las Vegas. It's an event not unlike one that many of us have been to before, whether it's an arts festival or music festival, but someplace where we're out in the open. And it had quite a unpredictable path and how it played out. And I think after it occurred, we had uh, some great takeaways from that. And I say that as people who look back and say, you know, what we might have done that maybe could have prevented it. But also, even though it was a terrible situation, we always want to learn from terrible situations. And that's what we're doing today. I think you make a really good point there. It's not just for festival goers. If you're in an outside space, there's something you're going to be able to learn from this episode, I think. So we're here for takeaways. So take it away. So first, I'm going to give you some background so everybody understands what happened. And this is super important because oftentimes people think they know what happened at an event, but they really don't necessarily know what we learned once we put all the facts together. So this is a situation that occurred on October 1st of 2017 at about 10 p.m. Well, the last musician, Jason Aldean, was working his set at this country music festival. First of all, a security guard in the nearby, right next door to the facility, Mandalay Bay Hotel, was sent to the 32nd floor of the hotel to check on an alarm that had been indicating that there was some problem with one of the doors. And so he discovered that someone had drilled an L-bracket, piece of metal L-bracket, into the door jam so the door wouldn't open. He reported the problem via his radio. And just moments later, he went to investigate some sound that was coming from a nearby room. He was struck in the leg when someone shot a few dozen rounds through the doorway of a hotel room. So he stashed himself off in the hallway and he waved down a maintenance man who actually had come up to look for the L bracket and to fix that problem. And he pulled him to safety in the hallway. Moments later, a 64-year-old man stunning the crowd below, alternating between four rifles among the 27 in his hotel room, began shooting from the windows of that 32nd floor down into a crowd that were attending a Live Nation country music festival. The event, called the Route 91 Music Festival at Harvest Festival, as you mentioned, sponsored by Live Nation and by the MGM Resorts International, who owned the actual facility where the event was being held. So in a stunning sight, the shooter had broken out the windows to his hotel suite with a hammer, and he was raining bullets down from semi-automatic weapons. And everybody, really, including the police, were initially uncertain where the bullets were coming from, even which hotel they might be coming from, or whether they were coming from the ground or coming from up above. They didn't even know if there was more than one shooter. A lot of people, to this day, think there was more than one shooter. So until they began to witness, uh, really, the fiery muzzle rounds coming from the darkness in the windows above, then police weren't certain. But at the same time, remember, there were officers upstairs. So the shooting continued almost without abatement for about the next 10 minutes. And when it stopped, sadly, 58 people had been killed and at least 489 had been injured, which is a huge number of people. Hundreds more may have been reportedly injured in one way or another. Two people who died later, their deaths were attributed also to the shooting. So 60 total dead. In the news reports about the shooting, the thing that struck me is that complete utter chaos and confusion. 
you put yourself in that position and there are people in a festival, all of a sudden noises are coming like firecrackers or what have you. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how many shooters there are. And I think at one stage, the performer on the stage realizes what's happening and he can be seen just legging it off the stage, which would be odd to watch anyway. But even then, I don't think it's easy for people to really understand in that confusion that they are in a deadly situation. Is there any tools or tips that you can give to really sharpen up that skill? Because how do you go, that's a gun, that's a firecracker? Well, so I get this a lot. And so I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's hard to even fathom the chaos that occurs in these kinds of situations. And everybody who I've ever interviewed who's been in these situations and spent time with, there is no control. You know, most of these types of shootings occur in places of business. And business people will say, well, first we would put an announcement over it and then we would direct all of our employees. And I always tell them, you're not going to do any of that. Stop making that part of your overall security plan because it's a designed failure in your planning. So really the biggest concern I have about people reacting is their default to like drop to the ground or to say, I don't know what's going on, so I'm going to stand still. Training yourself to skip disbelief is just that. And you do it in many other ways. You have to envision what you would do in an emergency. And once you run through it in your head or with your feet a few times, your body will just react to that. So like if you're the kind of person who turns to someone when you hear a loud noise or when something goes bad, and or here's a great example. So you miss your flight and then you turn to each other and you're like, did we just miss our train? Did we just miss our flight? Well, then you're practicing disbelief. You did miss the flight or you did miss the train. So stop practicing disbelief. Action is survival. So think of jumping out of the way of an ongoing car. We all do that. We see the car coming, we jump out of the way. There are plenty of things that we do where we don't think about it. We just do it. So if you're a person who is a plane misser, don't be that way. Be a jumper. Be a jumper. I like that. So in a big open area like a festival area that we're talking about here, can you actually get out of the rifle range? Rifle range? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, rifle range is long. Rifle bullets, even handguns can go even upwards of a mile if you don't care where they're going to because they go until something stops them or until gravity takes them down to the ground. And so that's more the reason, right? To get as far away as you can and to keep moving, you want to escape, escape, escape as fast as you can, because we're talking about even if you can't get far enough away, then you need to think about not necessarily concealment. You really need to think about cover. You know the difference, right? Cover yes. and concealment. I feel like we did that in a previous episode. Uh, when you're talking about concealment, you're talking about it just hides you. But cover is something like getting behind a brick wall, something right. that's solid. Not Good. a plastic table. Not a plastic table. Not mm. even a piece of wallboard. You're, you duck in the room and you think you're okay. But let's go through wallboards. Not behind a plate glass window. But let's go through glass. Or like a door in this case that he shot through to the security guard, right? That's right. Exactly. Right through. And you know, one of the things that I learned at the FBI Academy is best place to hide if you're near a car, hide on the other side of where the engine block is because the bullets aren't going to go through an engine block. Even in the movies, you'll see police officers and they'll duck down by the side of the front of a car because the engine block is there. That's the safest place to hide. And I know that sounds scary, but, you know, sometimes this is stuff that's scary. You mentioned that the, the gunfire was almost without abatement. But am I right in saying that there was a pause in the shooting into the crowd at one point before it started up again? You're definitely correct. In this case, he had guns loaded and ready to go. He put down one, he picked up another. You'd get a burst of fire, sometimes as many as like 80 rounds. So not a small number. A burst of fire. Then he'd put down that gun. He'd go get another gun. But in a lot of other shooting situations like this, we see magazine exchanges, meaning the, the cartridge that has the bullets in it. Those magazines would be changed out and it takes time to do that. Sometimes somebody isn't familiar with the gun. They buy a new gun to do a shooting. They don't know how to change the magazines out. They might not what we call seed the magazine properly, meaning set it into the gun properly. And that creates a misfire. We saw the first trigger pull in the San Ysidro McDonald's mm. murder back in the 80s was a misfire. And that's probably because he didn't seed the magazine properly. And a lot of these shooters are using weapons they're not used to. So that's very possible. And we see those kinds of delays. And those are the delays that allow you, which I think is your point, to get up and run. Get up and run. Mm. If you Even if you hesitate, just go, 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 because there are going to be these moments of changing magazines, or if you're close enough, 
to do the fight instead of running. Again, it was a really short time period, but can you tell me exactly how long it was from the first bullet to the last? Because I think you said 15 minutes. Well, it took about 10 minutes for the shooting to occur. I think the shooting actually was timed because, of course, we have recordings at 11 minutes. And the police officers were there in the hallway almost immediately, right? So it wasn't really possible, though, for security and police inside and security and police outside to really have any timely communication in that 10 minutes. You know, we have great law enforcement that's trained because the law enforcement at each end knew exactly what to do to how to support the crowd. But we really just had a couple of minutes at each location to decide what to do. And in each event, inside and outside, they acted independently to figure out, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And, and upstairs in the hallway, did they move towards the subject's room downstairs on the field in the venue? They worked on getting people out of harm's way and taking care of people who are injured. It's phenomenal amongst all that confusion that they managed to isolate the killer's location, isn't it, in such a short period of time? You know, Las Vegas is a big city. It's a vacation destination. And inside the hotel, security and, and definitely the police departments that service Las Vegas, they are up and ready to go right from the start. People come there to have fun, right? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So the police forces there, the hotel security there are pretty solid and they have pretty much seen a lot. The security guard, he's been shot through the door. He's on the 32nd floor and he was just investigating the L bracket. So really unlucky to have got that close to it. But he was able to communicate at that time, wasn't he? That's one of the reasons that they could get to exactly where the killer was. Because if we set the scene, there's 32 floors plus in a hotel. All they know from down on the ground is that maybe by that stage, they might have spotted the muzzle and communicated back. But this security guard managed to get that information straight to the people it needed to be with. Is right. That right. I mean, the fact that police and security were there in a few minutes is really just kind of amazing, right? So think of it, you know, when the shooting was underway, two officers were already on the 31st floor and saying, hey, we are hearing shots above us because they had an officer who was shot on the 32nd floor and they needed an answer to that. Amazing. So can you paint me a picture of how many people were attending this festival? I think there were 22,000 tickets sold, which is 22,000 people in a small venue, right? And it's obviously not too small of a venue, but it's a tight venue. If you look at it, it's the set between hotels. It's a 15-acre open-air venue. We know that shots went as far as 490 yards. That would be about 450 meters. Rifle rounds can travel very far and much further than that. So that's why we need to get people to move when they're out in the open air. So this festival was in its fourth year and a very popular music festival. I know people who were there. It's a great way to see, you know, the country stars you liked and still spend a fun weekend in Sin City. To give the listeners perspective, I think 450 meters is about the length of four American football fields in distance. That's huge. That is a huge amount of people that you could have packed into that space that were in firing range, isn't it? So this guy is just shooting down from that high vantage point. How do you stop that? Well, you stop it before it starts. I mean, in this case, the fact that the shooting stopped was a matter of kind of serendipity. That's a funny word to be using. Why? Well, well serendipity, I guess, yeah, maybe that's not the best word when you also use that uh, that term to talk about having a great day in the park and running into, <laughs> True. Running into somebody who's fun. It was serendipity that the officers were so close to the shooter. This is a 43-story hotel. 3,000 rooms, and it was only one of many hotels that were around there on the surrounding festival grounds. So he actually prompted the internal police reaction when he blocked the door. So his intent was to make it harder for police to find him, but what he did is actually made it easier for police to find him. So when the maintenance man came to the floor, this is the serendipity, he had a pass key because he was a maintenance man. So they were able to go into every room on that hallway floor, clear the hotel room that's out, make sure that the patrons were safe, and then get down to his room. And then when they did finally get into the front of his room, they actually blasted the door open so that they weren't standing next to it and found that he had killed himself and he was there on the floor. Wow. That's one part of the story I did remember, that he had killed himself. How did that play out? Well, I don't obviously have 
an idea of what was going on in his mind. But I do have a history of knowing what's going on factually in a lot of these types of shootings. You know, I often find that these shooters plan up until a certain point because they do all their planning and the preparation. Anybody who creates this kind of violence moves on a pretty predictable pathway to violence. And we know that they get this idea and then they plan for it, which we know he did. And that includes getting all the right equipment and then they make a plan, they're going to do it. But I think that their plan always seems to fail a little bit in what they're going to do afterwards. Some of the shootings we find shooters standing with their weapons when the police show up and they're just kind of like, okay, well, I didn't plan past this part. And I think in this case, he may have planned to leave based on some information, but he also may have planned on killing himself. But I think at that point, he heard the police coming and he just decided this was the fastest way to get to where he wanted to go. And I think that's probably, you know, kind of the hard part about it is we will talk more about the shooter, but it was definitely a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And we see that happen when I think when shooters don't have the plan afterwards on what they're going to do. Let's go back to the festival at the time. It, it, the shootings happen. It's got to be chaos. Did the festival provide security that could help when it was all happening? Well, you know what I talked to you about with the police and the hotel security? That's one end of the security realm. Live Nation security is kind of on the other end of the realm, right? There was a limited security from Live Nation on the festival grounds. And it was really that kind of security where they check your tickets. They make sure you don't jump on the stage or harass the talent. And probably a certain number of them who are, you know, they're all minimum wage and they're working there so they can watch free cool concerts. So I'll say this after the shooting, to their credit, Live Nation hired really a, it was a short-lived team of security professionals, aid and all, in order to improve their security. You know, I think the guy in charge of festivals is the only one they actually kept on through the years since that time. And it took them a little bit to figure out how to hire those people than they did, then they let them all go. So the message to listeners is you need to be your own security at these kinds of events. You can't count on the fact that some kid who who was hired to work two concerts is going to know how to be your security. Take care of yourself. You know, even Cracker Jack security can't do much directing of people when shots are being fired over their heads. Mm. Actually, my daughter was just working at a festival about two weeks ago and had, I think, all of one online training hour beforehand. So it goes to your point. That's exactly how it happens, right? There's very limited security. I know Live Nation, they're a huge company, but other companies that are similar to that, they hire a huge number of people for the season, so to speak. And, and those are all temporary and they are very limited. And these festivals are generally annual, aren't they? So did this affect the next year's festival? Did it even go ahead or was it cancelled? Uh, often these festivals are annual, but in this case, the enormity of this tragedy really scared everybody off. They tried to do an outdoor festival there the next year. They thought about maybe we'll do it in a different location, but it, it, in the end, they decided not to do it. They just really felt it was too difficult. There'd be too much coverage. and it isn't that things in Las Vegas weren't going fun and wild. And, the, and Live Nation still hosts many festivals around the world. And what they do when you think about this shooter being up above is their chief for festival security, they look for things that are just this kind of a threat, right? They're looking for distance. They're saying, where can somebody be at a distance and do this again to one of our festivals. And they look for those locations and try to protect the festival goers from those. Is it the safest place to be somewhere that's already had an incident like this happen? I think that there aren't a lot of these kinds of incidents. So I think if you're going to a festival, go to a festival, just know how to get away from it. You know, in Chicago, they hold a festival called Lollapalooza. Those are also held elsewhere around the world. And the Chicago Lollapalooza Festival is kind of on the lakefront It's a huge festival that's also sponsored by the same organization. They coordinate with security. And I know that the years after this occurred, they made such conscious efforts to prohibit, for instance, construction workers from working inside hotels and offices that faced the festival facility site for those four days. I think it's a four-day festival. So they're thinking more expansively now, and I'm appreciative of that. It's a start, but it's not perfect. Okay, so... It's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? I said, oh, you better come in. 
In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. What struck you about this particular incident that you think is the most significant piece of information that you would like the public to know? Well, you're always pinning me to one and I always seem to have two. <laughs> Pick a lane, Catherine, just one, just one. I know. I mean, I think you can have two. <laughs> obviously, you know, that it can it happen to anybody at any time. And I know I'm a broken record with regard to that. And I think about the, the events that have occurred that are major events here in the United States, overseas. One of those things about it can happen to anybody anytime is communications. There were thousands of people at this event. And as soon as stuff like this happens, it's almost impossible to use a phone. So think about a very tight area. It's almost impossible to use a phone. But of course, we all know, everybody should know by now, it's easier to get a text message through. So definitely have a plan to text. If you think that you can make a phone call, you might not be able to, but you could probably get a text through. And I think that's really important for people to know. So you can communicate with them and your your loved ones can know that you're okay. Most law enforcements are beginning to get text communication capabilities so you can text your information instead of calling if you can't get through to like 911 here in the States. But I think the second thing that's really important in this case with regard to that information is this was a big event. There were a lot of people hurt. There's a lot of uncertainty about what was going on. And these incidents are always made more tragic when misinformation comes out or straight forward lies. This, that's what happened in this case, straight up misinformation or lies that were spread by social media. So I say this because this was not a small example. And if you think about it, it was several years ago. So I know that Facebook and Google lifted up almost immediately false stories. They were not true. They were stories that with a couple of them, one of the stories said the FBI had tied the shooter to foreign terrorists. Another one said, that the shooter was from Antifa. I'll tell you that in the aftermath, we learned that Google said, oh, they had had a, a problem with their algorithms. And that's why that's, those stories were lifted up so that when you would search Google, that's what you'd see. Those two stories were filed by Sputnik, the Russian government media agency. Right? Hold on. So, that's actually true. They were filed by Sputnik. Was that more false information? That's true. The stories wow. came from the Russian media agency speculating that the shooter was tied to a foreign terrorist or the shooter was Antifa. Wow. And then picked up and repeated on people's Facebook pages, right? Both absolutely mm -hmm. false. Wow. The, the FBI terrorist falsehood was a top trending story on Facebook. And to this day, many people swear there were multiple shooters, ignoring all the actual evidence that was available indicating there was only one shooter. All the stories that are passed by people who don't know that Facebook itself is not a credible news agency, right? Google said its algorithms were just working improperly and they failed to catch this false story. Like you think? What this meant is really that when someone typed in the search to Google, that was the first story that came up. So people picked it up, dumped it out on their social media sites, and then they're sharing this. So when I was in the FBI, I worked 15 years in counterintelligence, which means you're working to counter foreign adversaries trying to hurt U.S. persons and U.S. interests. It's pretty easy to speculate that when tragedy strikes, if a foreign service who is a foreign adversary of ours can put out any social media material, any news material that divides us politically and stirs up political trouble, that benefits the foreign country. That's a fact of how we assess whether or not something's a concern. So in this case, when you're spreading information that's a rumor that you heard and you saw it on Facebook or you mistakenly, Google mistakenly didn't catch it, the story runs like that. What you're doing is you're really serving the political interests of a foreign adversary. You've just blown my mind. I'm not <laughs> even joking. You have completely blown my mind. I mean, I thought those were the misinformation stories that another government would be spreading this misinformation. Wow. The other thing that I think is really interesting that you said in there, and I'm going to be squirreling away and passing on to my family and loved ones, is text. You can get through on text. I wouldn't have thought about that. I didn't know that. And I think that's great. Little tidbit there. And that's really it because you don't have time to do anything. So 
you might be able to text a message to somebody who's already in your text system and say, I'm okay, talk later. And that's good enough. That's a text that you can blast it out to a lot of people. Some people choose to do that. They post it on a social media site. You can do it that way. We have earthquakes in New Zealand after one of the large earthquakes or anything like that. Now you can post Sarah Ferris is safe and it'll right. be up on the profile, which is a- I think Facebook does that and they do it for natural disasters. And I think that's a great service mm-hmm. they provide. So even though mm-hmm. I'm, you're hearing me say one thing about Facebook, <laughs> I just wanted to even it out a little bit. There. Give with one hand, take away with the other. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, Head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Let's go back to the festival and actually down on the ground. It's very confused. People are trying to work out what's going on. It's a very short period of time. We've talked about before the run hide, fight. What should you be doing in this situation? Here, there is one answer to that. It is the run part. And the FBI and the federal government so emphatic about it. They say the watchword here is escape. Wherever you are, escape from that location. Do not hunker down on the grass, which a lot of people do instinctively. And that's that teach yourself not to do that. But they duck down and they get on the grass. If you duck down and get on the grass, get up and start running. So that's what we want everybody to do. Get up and start running. There's no place to hide. There's no place to protect yourself. So get up and run. And we talked about this in the last recording that we did. The fact that bullets don't stop. The bullet can travel along the ground until it gets stopped. So don't be there. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I have friends who have been caught by bullet fragments and incidents and bounce off of a piece of cement and come back up and hit you in the calf, in the leg, in the foot. And what specifically did you mean about taking care of yourself and others? So something else you're getting at there, I feel. Well, I am. I think because when I started working with uh, then Vice President Joe Biden's office about working on what we can do better for law enforcement, at the time, I was focused very much on how can we help law enforcement do their job better. And then, of course, when I left the FBI, I changed my focus to how can I help the public be better prepared? And one of the ways that the public can be better prepared is to learn if you have a bullet wound or a knife wound, or if you have a bad break on your leg, your biggest danger is that you're going to bleed to death. And there are ways that you can stop bleeding. And there's a program that's free in the United States that you can see the information on it. It's called Stop the Bleed. It was set up by the same White House team that was working in tandem with us called Stop the Bleed. Here in the United States, the American College of Surgeons, which are the... uh, 
American College of Surgeons, and they will send a team to your business, uh, actually teach you how to not only pack a wound to make it stop bleeding, but how to set a tourniquet. And if you have a bleeding leg or arm, that tourniquet can stop the bleeding and stop you from bleeding out. So that's very valuable. And once you learn how to put on a tourniquet, once you learn how to stop the bleeding, I've been trained in that. It's a very empowering feeling. It doesn't take long to train, but my gosh, once you know how to do it, it's pretty cool. I'm racking my brains about the last time that I would have done any first aid training. And I think, and this is terrible, it was probably going back sort of 18 years when I had my first child. But I do think we did learn about tourniquets at the time. And it did stick with me that I would put a tourniquet on, but maybe I've just watched too much Grey's Anatomy. I don't know if I'd do it properly. I think it's time for a refresher course for me. Well, well, let me tell you two things about tourniquets that, that our audience should absolutely know. Half of them right now are shaking their heads and saying, Oh, no, no. I was taught you never put a tourniquet on because that's going to cause an amputation. No, no, no. Don't do that. That's an old belief. That's an old style belief. It takes hours for a limb to get to a point where it has to be amputated. And most of us are living in an area where we're going to be in medical care long before four hours or five hours. So there is not a fear of amputation like there used to be. So please put the tourniquet on. The other thing that I learned in this process is that tourniquets hurt. They hurt. If you aren't twisting the tourniquet tight enough to make the person who you're putting it on scream, you're probably not putting it on tight enough. That was frightening to hear. How do you know you've put it on tight enough? Is it obvious that the bleed stops? The bleed will stop. And I'll tell you this. Some people say, well, I'd take my belt off and I'd put it on. And I've seen people take a belt off. They'd wrap it around somebody's leg. And then they like button it like they're putting it on their waistband. And if they put it tight enough, like it's around their waistband, it's not tight enough. It's not going to stop the bleed. They have to really squeeze the leg until the blood stops to flow. And that's going to hurt. I mean, instead of like a strip of cloth, for instance, or whatever you might use, instead of just tightening it or tying it, it's actually better to twist it. And tourniquets, that's what you do. You twist them because you can get it tighter and tighter and tighter. Like you put a pencil or a pen or something and you think about twisting it. If it's a cloth, it's going to tighten down. Whether it wants to or not, you're going to have more leverage. So you can take the Stop the Bleed classes and you can look at it online, buy a tourniquet. I'll tell you that we started to do this after the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. This was one of the projects that my office took on. The White House was doing Stop the Bleed in order for my team to support it. I took over a million dollars from my budget to get kits for all of our 15,000 agents and other law enforcement agencies started to do that too. And in the United States, the Stop the Bleed program is trained like a million or two people right now, they want to train 200 million people in Stop the Bleed. But I'll tell you, as soon as we started putting kits in law enforcement's hands, we started seeing lives saved. Officers who would save officers' lives who were shot, agents who would save agents' lives who were shot. So it's a life-saving tool. My husband and probably other listeners will not be able to listen to this part of the episode if they're squeamish about blood. (laughs) He will be on the floor when he gets to this part. It's one of those things that people don't learn it because of that as well. No, that's true. I think you think, oh, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to do that. But if it was your child, and I think everybody can relate to it that way, if you're an adult and you think, okay, if my four-year-old fell from the tree and he broke his leg and it cut open an artery, would I want to be able to save his life? Of course. How could I save his life? This is how you could save his life. Because somebody can bleed out in a matter of minutes. Very important information. So I'm adding first aid course to my list of chores this week. Uh, So not the first aid course with band-aids and, and solar cane. And that's my dating myself when I say solar cane, but yeah. (laughs) I know what solar cane is. I lived without sunscreen. So we're back to the festival. There's normally some kind of perimeter that keeps people in and stops people just Mm -hmm. Gate crashing, as as they call it. Was that in place for for this festival in particular? Absolutely. They did have security in place. This was a specific designated venue. Sometimes the festivals are just a fence, and all of those fences are designed to keep people from the outside getting in without coming through a gate. They're not as well designed for getting out of the festival. And so when you go to the theater and they say, look for the emergency exits, 
That's really what this is. You have to think about what are the emergency exits. And in the case of this uh, particular event, I think there were challenges because the emergency gates, which would open wide and allow many people to escape all at once, were chained shut and they weren't attended. And I'll tell you that I talked to the Live Nation Security Festival chief about, and I know that was something that they promptly knew they had to correct. It sounds like the security at the festival has had a change of process since it's happened. What about the hotel? Because this killer managed to stay for six days prior to the actual shooting. And this is mind-blowing. He bought in, I think, 27 rifles in 21 suitcases. Did it change the way that hotels view their guests after this happened? Well, I can tell you, I was in Las Vegas a year later, specifically working on security and they definitely had changed their protocols where they would say, they'd give you a little flyer that would say, we have a right to come into your room. Now, remember the killer put a, a tag on his door. I don't know if I told you this, but he put a tag on his door like the day before the shooting and said, okay, I don't need any house cleaning. Don't come in. But he was there for five, six days and he had two different rooms. So I think that what I'm concerned about is that I, I don't know exactly, but I'd wager there's been some backsliding done on making sure that we get into these rooms because now we're all living in countries that are dealing with COVID. And now you go to a hotel and they say, we're not coming to your room unless you ask us to. That's the last hotel I was in a couple of weeks ago. We're not going to come to your room unless you ask us to. So they're really struggling with COVID. But I think that, and, and even employee shortages, right? But I think they're more attentive now. I mean, that's my hope is that they're more attentive now. The employees are thinking, could I, should I, and not thinking the patrons are perfect. You're giving us takeaways. So I'm going to tell you what I think my takeaways were from that. What I'm hearing is don't second guess yourself. If you hear anything that sounds like gunshots, don't stop and wonder if it's a Tom Thumb firecracker going off. Get the heck out of there. Escape. That was the word that stuck out in my mind, escape. And take a first aid course that is stop the bleed. You never know when you might need that one. Did I miss anything? No, that's good. That's what I love. When we have these conversations, I love it when you hear and you take away from it the things that I think are really at that moment, the most important things about our conversation. Bleed management techniques. Yay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> bleed management techniques. And you mentioned the sound of gunshots. Really, a lot of people say they don't know what the sound of a gunshot is. And you can certainly listen to it on YouTube. There's plenty of gunshot sounds. But what a lot of people say, oh, it's and it's all that denial, right? Oh, that's a car. I thought it was a car backfiring or I thought it was firecrackers. I always think to myself, you're in a school. You're in an office building. Often you hear people lighting off firecrackers in the lobby of the building. It's, it's less plausible almost that it's fireworks, but still people think that's what it might be. So I would say this, one of the things to remember about loud noises when it comes to weapons is often there's a cadence, you know, pop, 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 or an automatic weapon, pop, 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 pop. So if you hear a cadence, that's likely going to be a firearm, but should be another reason for you to say, oh, it might be that. Really don't forget, you know, after the fact, don't pass along rumors, don't pass along false stories, wait for the credible news stories to come out. How traumatizing is it for people who were there reading stories on social media sites saying this didn't occur, which we know still happens all over. We have our level of conspiracy theorists who believe that everybody at Sandy Hook was an actor. I talked no. to- Oh, yeah. I talked to the father of one of the teenagers who was killed at the Parkland High Schools uh, a week or two ago. And imagine how he feels every day without his daughter. It's changed his life dramatically. Yet people still say there really were just actors and nobody was really killed at that high school. I mean, how, how traumatizing that would be over and over again. They were just paid actors. That is just, can I just say batshit crazy? Yes, you may say that. I don't even know what to say to that. That is just blown my mind again. That is crazy. Why would they even think that? I can't understand it. But let's just leave the batshit crazy people to one side. We're going to talk about the killer's history, which we do every episode. Catherine, you always put me to the test. You're going to tell me the killer's history. I'm going to jot down what I think are the red flags that people would and should see something or say something about, because it doesn't come naturally for people to put their hands up, make that call and do it. And to that point, 
just last night, I was with some friends out for dinner and I was discussing, they were like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm doing a podcast with the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. They're like, is that not scary? And I said, well, we're taking all of that fear and we're replacing it with facts. And that's the whole point. And then we get into those conversations about why it's important to understand our role in the community to be able to see something and say something. And I give them examples that we've used in past episodes. One of my friends came up with a story and she said, in the supermarket the other day, she saw somebody that was acting quite odd. That immediately started a conversation about, well, it's it's not a crime. Why would you say something? And I said to them, what I've learned from Catherine is that person may have been out in the car park and slashed someone's tires on the way in. That's been reported. The next thing that person might have done is another act to someone else that's been reported. And your piece of the information might be the last piece of the puzzle that the police need to do something about it. Right? Amen. Yes, exactly. That's right. And you just don't know. And if your gut tells you, right, and and people do hesitate to say things and they shouldn't, but we have to teach people that because targeted violence is just that. It means that there's planning and there's preparation that goes along with it. And we're looking for all those little signs. And what was this violent offender telegraphing to other people? They all telegraph signs. They do the planning, they do the preparation. So we want to make sure that we catch them beforehand and see whether or not they are planning something, whether or not they're aggrieved and they they can't get over it and have somebody intercede before they let it get so weighted on their shoulders that we see killers, even those who've left messages and death say, I had to do it. You made me do it. I didn't want to do this. And that's their reasoning of how everybody else didn't see their signs. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. What can you tell me about this killer's history? And I'm going to hope that you're going to actually give me one little piece of information that is missing from this whole story, and that is the killer's motive, because I haven't heard that yet. Well, overall, this shooter was pretty much a fairly American upbringing, except the fact that his father had been on the FBI's most wanted list for nine years. Well, that's not normal. (laughs) That's not normal, is it? No. So that's that's actually not normal. It's one of the longest people who was on our most wanted list for a long time. But that's just a little bit of a teaser because actually he was a top tenor, but our shooter was only seven when his dad was arrested. And so his dad was really not part of his upbringing and his story. He had three younger siblings and the dad was not really involved after that. So actually as an adult, before this happened, he was a professional gambler who traveled quite a bit. He had a girlfriend before the shooting. He gave his girlfriend a plane ticket to visit home in the Philippines and transferred $100,000 to her and told her she should buy a house there. At the hotel, he checked in to the first room five days before the shooting, and he got assistance from luggage handlers because, as you mentioned, he had a lot of stuff with him. So he came in with five suitcases the first day. He carried seven in the next day. He carried 10 in on succeeding days, and he rented and two rooms that were adjoining 
checking into the, the second one four days later, just a couple of days before. So the hotel accommodated his needs. They assisted him in transporting the luggage upstairs, in some cases using the service elevator. He had been a comp to room because he was a professional gambler and they knew him. He came and went that day for the shooting. He checked into the adjoining room just the day before. He maybe had a better view from there to the venue, but nobody reported anything unusual. So I'm going to ask here, what did others see? I don't know. He rigged the room service cart out in the hallway with a camera. That's how he saw the police officer coming. I wonder how long was it there, right? He prepared prepared for contingencies. He had a bulletproof vest in his room. He had a gas mask in his room. So he was ready to go and there were some signs there. Well, let me just stop you there for a minute because I think it's really interesting that this case, you've given me only his recent history. Now, normally what you do is you'll give me a bit more background about their childhood or events in the months or years leading up to the incident. Why in this case are you giving me just the recent did he have a very normal upbringing? Well, you kind of caught me there. That's exactly right. He actually had a pretty regular childhood. As an adult, he worked hard on a lot of jobs. He was worked as a letter carrier and he worked for the Internal Revenue Service for a time. He was a contract analyst, which basically like he was an accountant by trade. He married twice. Both of his ex-wives said they got along with him well. He owned real estate. He was successfully managing real estate holdings and buildings. It really made him a pretty wealthy man. He was reportedly very generous. He would rent out several rooms and invite family and friends, and he would cover the costs when they came to Vegas. He even uh, reportedly had two small planes and a pilot's license. When he did finally turn to professional gambling, he gambled enough. We don't know how successfully, but he was comped rooms at the Mandalay and and elsewhere. He traveled extensively with his friends and family, and he was known to be a pretty nice, generous guy, a little quiet maybe. I'll add that in retrospect here, here's a few little tidbits I learned as the investigator. Around the time of his death, some people said they thought maybe he was losing some of his wealth, and he was on anti-anxiety medication. One other tidbit, he was seen doing target shooting practice I know this is a foreign concept to many of our listeners, but yeah, he was out in like an area of the desert a couple of days before the shooting, firing weapons in a place where other people have been seen to be target practice and shooting, firing weapons. So all in all, it sounds like he was a functioning adult and actually quite successful. We've spoken in the past about leakage, where the person will be giving clues away earlier before it starts. And all in all, he sounds like a functioning adult, so a really tough one. So I guess I'm going to go back to the information that you did give me and see what I would pull out as being the things that I think may have been pinch points along the way that somebody could have said something and say something. The hotel. Right. There seems to be several points along the way that the hotel could have perhaps notified someone or asked a question. But I guess the caveat to that is the hotel's a really big machine and it was over six days. So it might not necessarily have been the same bellman every day, taking him up in the elevator, helping him with his luggage. So maybe they wouldn't have put the two and two together like, oh, 21 cases, we've already taken 20. What are you doing? But what I would say is I do remember watching the video footage of this and And when he comes out of the elevator, the bags that he has aren't your typical suitcases. They are very much like now that you know that they had guns in them, it's clear that they had guns in them. So this guy's here to gamble bringing up 27 weapons, so heavy bags, and probably rattling metal on metal. The fact there that nobody asked the question was politeness, I'm guessing, was probably what happened there, right? Probably. It was probably a question of you don't question your patrons, right? And I think that's where hopefully there would have been a little bit of that change Mm -hmm. that we would have had because you're right about the weapons. You know, it's easy to say, this is what was in those boxes. Those were not suitcases. And I'll tell you, he moved those heavy gun cases filled with ammunition. He shot a thousand, maybe a thousand rounds of ammunition. That's probably 40 pounds. Those rifles are about 10 pounds a piece. Uh, so when they're loaded, maybe four kilograms. So a lot of weight that the bellman would have seen how heavy those cases are. Hopefully anybody who packs guns would know you never hear metal on metal, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can see my naivety there, can't you? That's okay. Really? That's all right. Okay. I like that naivety because it could damage them. You wouldn't do that. But that was definitely a pinch point, like you said. There were probably some others. Can you think of who else might have seen? So I also noted down that he hired that second bedroom, which I thought was quite weird because I don't know how that played out. But if he's gone to the receptionist and said, I want to get a second room for my girlfriend, he's 64 years old. How often do you hire a separate room for your girlfriend at that age? That might have struck me as a little odd, not being judgy, but I'm just saying... 
you know. What are you thinking? I don't know. When I'm 64, you don't really hold back. So I thought that would be maybe one instance, but also room service, right? The room service, did they go in there and every day all of a sudden there's this buildup of another suitcase? You can't hide 21 suitcases, even if they don't know what's in them. No, you can't. And these aren't, these don't look like suitcases. These are big plastic boxes with big mm-hmm. pieces of foam inside of them to, to protect the weapon. Okay. So how did I do? Good. I think definitely the bellmen, you wonder if there was conversation back in the bell room about, my gosh, that guy up on the 32nd floor, but that never got conveyed potentially to a point where it might've made any difference and certainly never to security people who might've inquired. And then the cleaning people, I think you have to let them go in and I know I don't like people in my room. I'm very careful about that. When I'm in a hotel, I'm often putting that little tag on my door. But that's a watchword. It's a warning sign. And the only people who can really get us to there are the people who have legitimate, reasonable access to that room. You know, security doesn't, but the cleaning people do. Now, hopefully, our people are trained in the hotel business to be more comfortable with saying something if they're concerned. You make a good point, actually, because I was thinking maybe the bell would have that conversation with the killer. But you're right, back down when he's talking in the the breakout room, that's the opportunity to have those conversations. My question to you is, did anyone actually report anything in this case? No. And I want to go back to one thing that you said before about the surveillance video that you saw. Mm -hmm. You know, surveillance videos are often used for theft prevention, theft detection. They're used in retrospect. But a good surveillance system, a good camera system in a building is used for prevention. You should see somebody ahead of time. And in the casinos, they know that. They see if somebody's doing something and and they intercede. And they have a lot of people in the casinos working in these big rooms with tons of cameras. And part of the adjustment, I think, for anybody who runs a surveillance system who has cameras is that the purpose of those cameras shouldn't be just for after the fact to find out what happened. It should be before the fact. And I know that I'm in hindsight telling them what they should do, but I'm trying to be critically helpful in saying, is there a person who's sitting in front of those cameras saying, wow, that's a lot of stuff to be hauling into a room. Who is the guy who checked into that room? Is he with a television crew? I've worked with a lot of television crews and they move a lot of equipment that fill rooms, but that equipment is an indication. We know that's a television crew. Not a lot of people check into a hotel to gamble and check in with that amount of baggage and luggage. And could the surveillance person in security have seen that? They're trained for that more so than the person that's going in and doing the cleaning in that room, because I know people have done chalet cleaning jobs and all that kind of thing. That's not part of the training. Right. Exactly. It it isn't, right? And I mean, it should be just a little part of it. You want to feel safe when you're staying in a hotel or a motel or whatever it is. You want to be safe but you want that safety to include security about something that might be a danger around you. So really, they didn't have an opportunity to see those things, but we hope they will in the future. We don't always have time to go into every behavior of concern on each of these episodes. So Catherine, in this case, what would you like to highlight in this killer's background? Let me just start out by saying a year after the FBI came out, the behavioral team came out and said they had like 10 different findings. But they said he acted alone. They said there was no clear or single motive, which is what you asked me in the beginning. There were no grievances. There was no inspiration by politics or other ideologies. They obviously concluded that he died by suicide. They speculated, which was they recognized this was speculation, that maybe he just wanted to gain a little infamy like his father, right? But they included that he was not unlike a lot of other shooters. So think about where he is. He had all kinds of stresses and he had concerning behaviors in his life. So when you ask me, okay, well, what kind of behaviors did we have? We didn't really have any behaviors of concern except for the ones that we addressed already, but we didn't have any in his lifetime, right? Most mm-hmm. of the time we have a pretty good indication because investigation tracks backwards on a shooter's history. And we see there was this clear trajectory towards violence. And at times that trajectory might be slow. It might be a, a matter of a few days. It might be a matter of a few months. It might be a matter of a couple of years. But here, behavioral experts, they're not in the guessing game. And they said, we don't have anything that indicates that there were these baby behaviors of concern that would have maybe prompted everybody um, to see way ahead of time. The behaviors that we saw at the hotel, like you mentioned, there certainly may have been other people who saw um, him loading those big cases into his car, purchasing those guns, that kind of a history. 
which is, I mean, I don't want to say it's speculative, but I'm saying we're not going to go into the details of it here. So there might have been somebody who could have seen something and said something because they didn't know, but we didn't have anything that really nailed down whether or not and why this guy did this and that somebody could have reported for. And I'll tell you one of the things when we talk about how you don't really know, and this is a perfect case of somebody who just you don't know anywhere. Remember I mentioned before about Chicago and Lollapalooza and how they had this festival at Lollapalooza, the same company sponsors, Live Nation sponsors Lollapalooza. This shooter had a hotel room overlooking Lollapalooza that same year. And for whatever reason, the Chicago venue is further away from the hotels by a good distance. And maybe once he checked in, or maybe once he looked it over, he decided it wasn't as good of a target. So you never know, right? No, no, you just don't. No, so no clear behaviors of concern, even though we know that when you look back at it, he was on anxiety medication. He had increased his target practice in Las Vegas. He did apparently have some troubles with his finances. And so he did send his girlfriend back to the Philippines uh, with money to buy a house, which you could presume is because he wanted you know, her to be okay and wanted her to be safe and to be set. What are the hard lessons that we learned from the Route 91 Music Festival? Well, I think that one of the things that is important is that you just recognize that when you're in a situation, you have to go. And I know I say that a lot of different ways, but employees need to do their reporting. It's all about, are you in charge of the security or is the security in charge of you, right? So for hotels, it can change their ideas that the customer is not to be questioned. For concert goers, it's, hey, there's lessons that likely learned but not shared are that you need to search for exits. You need to know where to go in an emergency. You need to know how to take care of people so you can stop the bleed. And what were the incredible moments of humanity and resilience and courage and also bravery that we saw at the Route 91 Music Festival? Well, that's a good question for this festival because there were so many injuries and a lot of people helped other people like you would expect. But the thing that I wanted to highlight here is that there was not one or two or five. There were many members of the U.S. military, military from out of country like in the U.K., who came when they heard the gunshots, there was actually a number from England who were eating dinner. They weren't even near the facility and they heard the gunshots and they came running. So really wow. this is, yeah, this is my good moment is they use their medical training that they got in the military. I'm telling the rest of us to run from gunshots, but people who are trained in the military run two gunshots. And in this case, mm. many, many, many of them did and administered medical assistance to people and carried people out of harm's way. So really, my incredible humanity is, is a nod to the military personnel who were there as concert goers, who were there in the region and heard the sounds. And when all of the rest of the people were running away from the bullets, they were running towards them. Couldn't agree more. And even the retired, it seems to be muscle memory that they would run towards them. Incredible humans. I want to know what your final message would be today. Dust up your first aid skills and learn how to stop the bleed. You can save a life, not just in a shooting. You can save a life in plenty of other situations, car accidents, any place else. So save a life, learn how to stop the bleed. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. 
everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. One of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. I found out the person that I've been dating for the last six months is a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series. And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. 